Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. co-host craig what's going on dude hey not a whole lot it's been a wild couple weeks man excited to to get part two of uh of our case out the door here part one was going really well uh hope everybody's enjoying it so far and hopefully you'll enjoy the uh conclusion to the case here this week yeah i think part two is going to be really good i'm looking forward to wrapping this up we got a lot of information to cover and it, it is still baffling to me that just uh the amount of just victims and it's just completely crazy and I don't think Dean Cordell gets enough credit for being one of the you know one of the worst serial killers in the U.S. yeah it sounds weird when you talk about it you know like man he doesn't get enough credit for murdering a bunch of people <laughs> but you know you have like people like Son of Sam and stuff and it's like I don't know he didn't really kill very many people I don't think it was like four or something that was a pretty low number but he was, you know, he's got this notoriety that guys like Coral, who killed a shit ton of people, just don't get the notoriety for. Yeah, not not one of the most common names that pops up in your head when you think about these guys, for sure. But when you start, you know, looking at everything collectively, it's very scary. I'm glad there's not more guys like this running around. No kidding. One thing I wanted to talk about, I believe we have an imposter on the loose. So, stumbled across a, a competing podcast that's trying to steal our name. Um, I'd like to kick their ass. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I know we tried to reach out to them directly and say, you know, take the uh, take the high road and say, hey, congratulations on the new show, and you know, hope things go well. But you know, kind of want to maybe consider a name change because it's 
other than throwing the in front of the name of their podcast, that's the only difference. So might might run into a little bit of a clash when uh, people are searching us out. Yeah, no kidding. And, uh, you know, they didn't respond. So I felt that was a little shitty on their part, you know, because we reached out. And we were very cordial about it, I felt like. And, um, you know, I would appreciate if they made a slight adjustment to their name so that way we wouldn't be so confused with this other podcast that's probably going to not be nearly as kick-ass as ours. Yep. But I guess we'll just have to slaughter them in the, uh, in the rankings. So, hey, guys, keep listening to us. Fuck those other guys. <laughs> we'll just keep fighting a good fight, keep drudging forward. That's right. We got a head start. So, anyway, hopefully you guys are enjoying the show. Um, We're going to kick off this week's episode. You are listening to Killer, and this is the case of Dean Coral, the Candyman, part two. Lock your doors, bolt your windows, and turn off the lights. We're about to begin. Forty years ago, Houston was coming to grips with a mass murder case that we still don't fully understand. Dean Carl and two teenage accomplices kidnapped, tortured, and murdered at least 29 boys from the Houston Heights. Now, over the years, we have learned a great deal about this case, but never heard from the lone female survivor. Tonight, we will. Reporter Ted Oberg is live in the Houston Heights. Ted? Gina, 40 years ago, all those kids were from this neighborhood, and Rhonda Williams was too. She called us recently and said 40 years of silence is long enough. She wanted to tell her story. She is still receiving some threats in connection with this case. And while she wanted to tell her story, she didn't want us to show her face, and so we agreed. Growing up, there really wasn't anyone Rhonda Williams could depend on. At some point, I was just used to a lot of things that weren't so great. Williams claims she was raped as a three and four year old, in and out of foster care as a child, and suffered silently as she was repeatedly beaten by her drunk, now deceased father. Screaming is one of those things I would not have done because I knew that would get you in more trouble. In her teenage years though, she did count on Elmer Wayne Henley a boy she knew from her Heights neighborhood. One August night in 1973, Henley heard Rhonda's drunk father threatening her and climbed in her bedroom window to help Rhonda escape. We creaked down the stairs. What Rhonda didn't know then was the teenage friend saving her from her father was helping Dean Coral, Texas's most prolific serial killer. Henley drove Rhonda and another teen, Tim Curley, to Coral's Pasadena home. They partied and awoke hogtied in the middle of Coral's rage. He started kicking me and, you know, said, wake up, bitch. Coral untied Henley, but took Curly and Rhonda into his bedroom and lashed them to his homemade torture board. I could hear Tim hit the floor. Still, she wasn't worried. I couldn't see Wayne hurting me. I just trusted him. But then Wayne told her... He was afraid that he wasn't going to be able to save me. So he was going to sit down with me, you know, lay down with me like, you know, he'd been doing when we talked. And he was going to put the gun behind my head while we're talking. And then he was just going to shoot me. Betrayed. Again. But now tied to a torture board between a friend and a madman as the night dragged into early morning. 
all of a sudden he came in and Dean was focused on Tim and the gun was on the dresser. But then, staring down at two of his friends, Rhonda says something snapped in Wayne Henley. Rhonda Williams was not going to be Coral's next victim. The fact that I wasn't hysterical and I just kept looking to Wayne to get me out of there. He'd always been my protector, so yes, I was like, when are you going to get me out of this? With the body count then at 29 boys, Wayne Henley had seemingly had enough of Coral's killing. He stood at my feet and just all of a sudden told Dean that this couldn't keep going on. He couldn't let him keep killing his friends and that it had to stop. Dean looked up and he was really surprised and so he started getting up and he was like, you know, you're not going to do anything to me. And then Wayne, you know, he had the gun raised already and he just started shooting. Still tied to the board, Williams watched as Coral fell dead and Henley called police to confess. Over the days and weeks that followed, Henley led authorities on a gruesome trail across southeast Texas, picking up the buried, decomposed bodies of Coral's victims. Henley was sent to prison. Rhonda Williams, jailed and hospitalized for a time, was let go. A judge told her to forget about it and never speak of that night again, a promise she kept until now. Physically and mentally, it's taken my life for me. After we last met, we were discussing Dean Coral, David Brooks, and Elmer Wayne Henley. We discussed the sick and twisted nature of the trio's relationship and the sadistic killings performed by the group. We left off in 1972. The body count was now up to 14 victims, all young teenage males. The majority had been tortured, raped, and strangled. A few of them had been shot, but all of them were deceased. I'd like to take a moment to list off the victims by date just to recap the timeline. We started in 1970, September 25th, with Jeffrey Conan. December 13th, James Glass and Danny Yates. In 1971, January 30th, Donald Waldrop and Jerry Waldrop. March 9th, Randall Harvey. May 29th, David Hiltgeist and Gregory Malley Winkle. August 17th, Reuben Watson Haney. 1972, February 9th, Willard Branch Jr. March 24th, Frank Aguirre. April 20th, Mark Scott. May 21st, Johnny DeLome and Billy Balch Jr. The body count was exceedingly high, yet we are still not through. Last week we talked a little bit about Henley and Brooks and their brief break-in time, but we're going to go back a little bit to talk a little more about the murders that we didn't cover last time. Coral moved to another apartment in the summer of 1972. Here, he kills at least two more victims, the first one being Stephen Sickman, age 17. Sickman was last seen leaving a party in Houston Heights before midnight on July 19th. He was savagely bludgeoned and had several fractured ribs before he was strangled by Henley and buried at High Island Beach. About a month later, 19-year-old Roy Button was abducted walking to his job at a Houston shoe store. He was eventually shot twice and buried in the boat shed. Neither of the bodies were identified by Brooks or Henley. Only in 2011 were they identified. We're already at a body count of north of 14 victims at this point, and we're still not done. It's just, I think Craig alluded to this earlier when we were talking uh, at the very beginning of the show. You know, this this guy, I mean, you're over 14 people, and and, and the notoriety that he really lacks, um, you know, for the general public, it's, it's quite damning. Um, you know, 
and and he's abducting people who are i mean perfectly capable you know adult young adult men in some cases you have a 19 year old i believe that was abducted and he's still able to continue on torturing people and murdering them and not getting caught and nobody's able to escape or fight him so far to me it's it's strange like you said these are young adult men so i i I don't know what his tactic is to get get them into the car and get them back to his apartment. I mean, it almost has to be a friendly approach because there has to be somebody at some point come along that's going to, you know, they're going to fight back and say, you know, I'm not leaving or going anywhere with you. So there has to be an aspect to his abductions where it could just be, you know, hey, dude, you need a ride somewhere. You want to go back and hang out at my apartment? Um, I got this or I got that back at my place. We can go party, do whatever. Yeah, I think that's usually from the things that I've read. He tends to try and abduct people. I I wouldn't even necessarily consider them abductions in most cases. I'd say he just lures people by saying, hey, why don't you come back to my place? Uh, You know, we'll smoke some pot and drink some beers and hang out and party. And and that seems to work, you know. And I think that's kind of what he's going for. Who knows how many men or young boys were solicited by them. And just weren't picked up because they didn't fall for it. You know, I, I don't know. I, I didn't actually run across anything that anybody came out and said, hey, this guy tried to get me in his car, but I didn't go. You know, so I don't know. I, I've never read anything where he forcibly ad- abducted anybody. But then again, whenever he did this, it seemed like nobody was around to witness it because, you know, this had gone on for almost close to three years and he was never caught. He's not attacking somebody right out on the street and dragging them into the car, beating them unconscious or whatever. So yeah, it has exactly. to be a, it has to be a friendly exchange. They're getting in the car. And we we talked about this in part 1. He bought he he he's buying Corvettes, he's handing out cash like, you know, it's going out of style. Maybe he's got a really nice car and he he stops and offers somebody a ride and they're like, "Oh wow, who's this guy? You know, he must have some money, but he's got a great place to go party, right?" They use that Corvette a couple of times, I know. Um, the one that he bought for David Brooks. So he might, and then he also had a, like a, a rape van. So, uh, he had one of those, like we covered in that, in the, our first case, the, the Buell case. Um, he had a van sounds very similar to that one, you know, a big, huge giant van where you could just throw whatever you wanted in the back. But again, I think he, I think he gets these people into his vehicles under the pretenses of partying and having a good time. And, I think the other trick is he has Henley and he has Brooks with him in most cases. And I think the two of those guys, they're younger. I think they kind of do most of the luring, you know, and Coral's kind of just the creepy dude just hanging out there. You know, it's like, hey, come back to my place. Let's party. You know, and and everyone's like, oh, I guess these two guys are here with him. Probably not a bad, bad dude. Let's go party. And then it turns out he's a terrible, disgusting human being. So, yeah, it's it's. It's definitely, uh, it's interesting to see this kind of unfold and, and how many times it unfolds and works, you know? I don't know. It's weird because I never lived in a time where hitchhiking was a thing, and it seems like during this time it was a huge thing until people realized that there were people like this. And so for me to understand that, it's kind of hard to wrap my head around just getting in a stranger's car and going somewhere and hoping they don't murder you. Yeah, no kidding. And... It, like like you said, I, I think having Henley and Brooks with him, you know, most of the times when he's out trolling around trying to find people to pick up, those people that they're picking up, you know, 
a lot of them have been identified as friends of Brooks and Henley just from that neighborhood. So the friendly face, you know, the nice car, a lot of the pieces fall together there. It makes it much easier to get somebody in the car that you're going to target. Yeah, definitely. So we'll move on and start covering the murders uh, as they happened in starting in 1972 and move forward through the timeline here. On October 2nd, 1972, Henley and Brooks met Wally Simono and Richard Hembry. The pair were coaxed into Brooks's Corvette and driven to Coral's apartment. That evening, Simono was heard by his mother over the phone shouting, Mama! into the phone before the line was terminated. The following morning, Hembry was accidentally shot in the mouth by Henley. Both were eventually strangled to death and buried in the boat shed directly above James Glass and Danny Yates. The following month, November 15th, Richard Kepner was abducted or lured away while on his way to a payphone to call his fiancée. He was subsequently strangled and buried at High Island Beach. In January of 1973, Coral again relocated. This time, he moved to an address on Wirt Road in the Spring Beach District of Houston. Within two weeks of moving into the new apartment, Coral murdered 17-year-old Joseph Lyles. Just a week later, March 7th, Coral relocated again. This time, he moved to 2020 Lamar Drive, an address his father vacated in Pasadena. There was a lull in the killings, as we mentioned in Part 1, between February 1st and June 4th, 1973. Coral is known to have hydrocell, which is a condition where fluid can build up in the testes. Coinciding with this, Henley moved away temporarily to try to distance himself from Coral. It's speculated that is this is why there was a brief break in the killings. So there's a lot of change of address for this guy. Um, you know, he moves a lot. And I'm thinking it seems like he signs really short, you know, rental agreements and then moves around in order to try and keep the evidence at a minimum, which is kind of smart when you think about it, especially back then, you know, if you're moving from different jurisdictions or anything, and I don't know, honestly, how, how many jurisdictions he lived in, but you know, if you're moving around, not staying in the same place for too long, it's a lot harder for police to track you down. And back then, they didn't have the DNA technology they have today, so even better for them. If if the physical evidence is gone, and and then you have you know new people living in these places, the crime scenes are contaminated heavily. Like they would never be able to track you down. It's next to impossible. They have to actually physically catch you doing it in the one place that you're at at that time. Right, and Houston's such a huge metro area. Moving from, you know, suburb to suburb or, you know, relocating just around that metro area, it had, it had to be, like you said, it had to be fairly easy to cover his tracks, you know, to a certain extent because they don't have the DNA technology. I don't know that with all the information that I've read over, I don't know if there was any composite sketches or they had any real suspicion that at, to this point that Coral was doing this stuff. No, and I think you raise a good point. I think there was a lot of fallout after this case around the police not doing enough and that it is kind of chalked up in most cases to so-and-so just disappeared. They just left. They went on their own, you know, they ran away, you know, and that was kind of the, the standard line from police back then. You know, whenever you'd report a young kid missing, they'd say, eh, they probably just ran away. And that was it. And they kind of left it. Now we're starting to see, usually like a 24 to 48 hour window where they'll kind of say well let's kind of wait and see and in some cases they react immediately but there are there are definitely cases where you know you have this like 24 to 48 hour waiting period where you know if if you're reporting somebody missing they'll kind of try and hold you off from filing a missing persons report right away you know they like to kind of give it a little time and make sure that this person shows up but more and more they're actually starting to react at these 
almost instantaneously just because I think of cases like this where, you know, if they would have reacted fast enough and happened to catch a lead quick enough, they could have caught him and found the person alive, um, you know, versus runaway cases. And you don't want to waste your resources on runaway cases, but at the same time, you don't want to not use your resources when people are really legitimately abducted and in danger. I can see where the fallout comes in, though. I mean, you get to a point, you know, a year into this, and you have so many, you know, quote-unquote missing children or missing teenagers. I would think at some point they get a little bit more suspicious, and they put a little bit more, you know, emphasis on finding some of these missing teenagers or whatever, especially when it keeps happening. I mean, what we just read, it's happening every week or two. So it's still going on and on and on. He he is bouncing around you know, the Houston area, but still, I mean that is a lot of kids just to come up missing. Yeah. And, and that's the thing, you know, like there's just so many that are missing. It's not just, you know, a handful. I mean, we were at the beginning of this episode, you're at 14 dead boys at this point. And so it's like, you know, at what point did the police stop and, and start trying to connect these cases together and realize that there's something bigger going on here now? I mean, again, I think we've talked about this before in in the eighties, you know, uh, the Johnny Gosh case and stuff where he gets abducted and people will theorize he was sold into a sex slave ring and stuff like that. Like pedophilia and, and homosexual behavior and stuff like that just like wasn't like a thing people like really, really believed or really, really thought about. Like, yeah, they were loosely aware of it, but it wasn't like it is today where it's like people really, really realize now like just how many twisted and sick individuals there are. I mean, there's a website for sex offenders. You know, so you can go look up if you're living next to one. So, you know, it's just a different time now, but it's back then it wasn't like a thing where they were like thinking, oh, yeah, there's this dude and he's going around like raping and murdering teenagers. They're thinking nah, more on that naive train of thought. Nah, they're just running away. You know, they're they're out They're They're kids. They just they're they're trying to get out of here. I'm glad you mentioned the 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 sex offender, the registered sex offender database and the lists that are out there now today. If anything good came from things like this specifically, it's that because once you're registered and you're on that list, people know where you live. If you live within a certain neighborhood, those lists are out there. They're public record. So it's scary to read sometimes, too, because they're even the area that I live in. It's almost like there's a few different streets in within town that all of these people uh, congregate. I don't know if that's by design or that's just <laughs> where they end up. It's scary, dude. You don't want your kids walking those streets for sure. You, you sure as hell don't go down there trick-or-treating in that area of town. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have a sex offender alley over there. Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there is good that comes out of it, but at the same time, you know, there's not, there's those, you know, rules where they can't live within so many feet of a playground or a school. And that's, what's kind of nice about where I live. I live right next to an elementary school. So, you know, I think I'm covered, you know, for now, but the, you know, I don't know. I have mixed feelings on that registration list, honestly, but I won't get into that here. That's a whole nother topic for another day. Following the move to Lamar Drive, by June, the killings resumed, and they increased in intensity and frequency. Brooks and Henley compared this to a bloodlust, and they stated that they knew it was time Coral needed a new boy based on his appearance. He would exhibit re- restlessness, increased smoking, and had odd reflex moments. On June 4th, the next victim would be abducted. 
William Ray Lawrence, age 15. He was tortured and abused for three days before being strangled and buried at Lake Sam Rayburn. Less than two weeks later, Raymond Stanley Blackburn, age 20, met the same demise. During the summer, the murders continued to escalate. This time, Henley met a boy, Homer Lewis Garcia, while at a driving school. The following day, Garcia phoned his mother to say that he was staying the night at his friend's house. However, he was shot and left to bleed out in Coral's bathtub, before he was also buried at Lake Sam Rayburn. Five days later, another victim, John Sellers, was bound, shot, and buried at High Island Beach. Henley continued to aid Coral and become his sole helper, temporarily, while Brooks married his fiancée. During this time, three more murders occurred, Michael Balch, Charles Cobble, and Marty Ray Jones. Coral's last known victim was murdered on August 3, 1973. The victim was James Stanton Dremala. He was abducted by Brooks and Coral while riding his bike in Pasadena. The pair tricked Dremala by telling him they were going to collect empty glass bottles that they could resell. Once in Coral's residence, he was tied to the torture board, raped, tortured, and strangled with a cord before being buried in the boat shed. The frequency and intensity of these abductions, you know, really picks up here. And you see, again, we were talking earlier about, you know, the methods used to trick these people. And again, it's all under, you know, stuff that would be on the up and up. Hey, let's go collect some glass bottles. Hey, let's go party at my place. So you're seeing here kind of some of the method of the madness that we were alluding to earlier. And, you know, in this case, they're they're talking to Dramala, telling him that they're going to go collect some glass bottles that they could resell. And, you know, somehow that trick seems to work. Yeah, it's, it's not it's not necessarily. Well, it is a trick because they're using it to abduct someone. But for those younger listeners in the crowd back in the mid 70s, that was a thing. You could go to the grocery store. You could buy your uh, soft drinks in glass bottles and then return them for a deposit. So any of you uh, youngsters out there that don't know that that's a thing, that was a big thing back then because you could get like five or ten cents a bottle. So, you know, we, we've talked about the value of money in the 70s. So. Hey, let's go gather up some glass bottles. Make a little cash. Well, that's the uh, that's the stamping on those glass bottles, right? Where they say the the five cents, except for in Michigan or whatever it is. It's always like some weird state that doesn't want to play. So you have to put the one exception on there. But yeah, it's a uh, it's definitely it's just yeah, it's weird to think about you know back then. But I don't know, just thinking about it though, if, like if I had somebody approach me and tell me they were going to. Like, we're going to go collect glass bottles together, and I don't even know who the hell they are. I don't know that I'm going with them. You know what I mean? Like, But again, it's really hard to look at this without the bias of not only researching and reading a lot of true crime, but my own personal like stranger danger fear that I had as a kid. I always had it, and I think it was instinctive in me for some reason. Yeah, I'm sure I was taught it too, but I feel like I had a stronger stranger danger than you know a lot of kids. And, um, you know, my kid's kind of the same way. You know, he won't just go with anybody. He, you know, he sticks with his parents mostly. You know, he's got to know you before he goes with you. And so just that kind of line of thinking is kind of where my head always goes. And I have a hard time digesting the fact that people were willing to jump into the car with this guy. It, it definitely wasn't as conditioned as it was, you know, 40 years ago. Or I should say in today's terms, because... It, it is a conditioning thing. I mean, even even back then, I would have been very hesitant to jump in somebody's car, you know, at, at, even at four or five years old. You know, you just, you had to know your surroundings a little bit more. There, we've alluded to it before in part one, too. There's a lot more free will during this time. 
And, and you, even you said it, you know, hitchhiking is not a thing today to think of getting in a stranger's car and, you know, trying to ride to the next town or, you know, cross country, whatever. It, it's, it's almost insane to think about in today's terms. Yeah. I, I mean, I remember being a kid and I used to live near kind of a, I guess you'd call it a strip mall. And it was mostly just like a convenience store, video store, you know, pizza shop and the gas station. And, um, you know, our neighborhood, it was like a, it was a good sized neighborhood and, you know, a bunch of houses back there. And then it like that where the, the street would eventually funnel out to was like kind of the main drag through town. And it was a pretty small town. And we lived by this, like I said, like a strip mall area. And my buddies and I would ride our bikes in this strip mall area all the time, you know, and we would go up and down, back and forth. You know, we had, you know, free will in that regard where we were out just doing whatever we wanted at a young age. I mean, I remember being six years old and, you know, going down there and, and riding around doing stuff. And, you know, I remember we would ride our bikes around there a lot. And on occasion, there would definitely be some creepy people that would approach us. And we were always really nervous about it. And we would take off, you know. Um, and I recall one time one of my buddies was almost picked up by somebody you know like they were trying to get him into his into their van and it was the stereotypical white pedophile van and you know you're trying to pick this pick this kid up and get him in there and you know i i would just always remember that from just such a young age um just always being aware of these people and just like don't go with these people get the hell out of there and fortunately his house happened to be the very first house in the neighborhood so we were always able to jam out of there and get to his house really quick you know compared to mine mine was buried back in the neighborhood up a giant hill like there's no way if, if an adult wanted to come get me like i was not getting away there's no way yeah that's a crazy story back to the van man i don't know what it is about the van <laughs> yeah if you find people driving like, you know, a Chevy Astro van in this day and age, you better look at them twice. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. You, There's no it's funny you say that because my father-in-law drove one up until about four years ago, but that was just his thing. <laughs> <laughs> you never know who you live with, Craig. You never know. <laughs> no knocking my father-in-law. He's a good dude, but. I didn't have that problem. That experience that you had was something I I didn't have. I I lived in the middle of nowhere. I lived in the country. I had no neighbors. It was just, you know, wide open. My closest neighbor was my grandparents up the road, maybe two miles. So, oh man. Yeah, and and that's that's crazy to think about. And back then, you know, um you you think about this like there was a, you know, it takes a village mentality and a family mentality, and I think that's kind of what drove people to pack in neighborhoods so tightly and be close to their neighbors and stuff. I think there was a great sense of community back in those times, you know, in the 70s and earlier when they started developing some of these places. And people really flocked to that because there was a, hey, you know, we're all in this together kind of a thing. You know, hey, if you see my kid acting up, you know, spank his ass. Like, I don't care. Um, you know, he shouldn't be doing that. So take care of it. And today it's like further from the truth. You know, it's like, hey, don't touch my kid. Don't look at my kid. My kid didn't do anything wrong. You're wrong. You know, it's like flipped that mentality 100% on its head. And, 
you know, now when you go look at this stuff, it, it, no one's, nobody's able to help other people raise their children and keep them in line anymore, you know, in that regard. I, I don't know if it was good or bad. I'm not taking a stance on it. But what I'm saying is there was definitely this culture shift. And so back then in the 70s, you had these people who were willing to just go hitchhiking and do what they wanted. And, you know, because it was like, a, hey, you know, my... Uh, neighbors down the road are going to keep an eye on my kid while I'm down here because they know I'm not here. They'll keep an eye for me, you know, that type of thing. And I think actually, so just thinking about this, um, you know, when we're covering the uh, the dating game killer, um, when he was at the beach, uh, one of those girls recalled her neighbor popping her head out and going, hey, is everything okay? And then, you know, the guy took off. But later he stalked one of the girls and picked her up, you know, but Again, he was th that was your neighbor looking out for you, and and they didn't have to do that, you know. Today, in this day and age, I don't know how many people would do that. People are so self-absorbed anymore. Uh, today, I don't even know that some of the people that even live on my street that would know that my kids they don't know that I'm their parents. You know, they they're so disconnected from everything around them, and they're only isolated to their own little world in their house on one street. They're oblivious to what all is going on around them. They may see, you know, the kids walking to the bus in the morning or whatever, but it would be a shock to me if they would just, even if they would come to the door and say, hey, good morning, how's it going? It just doesn't happen anymore. Oh, yeah. And I'm part of that problem. I don't like talking to my neighbors at all. Um, I, I'm just a quiet person. And I just, it's not that I like don't like people, but at the same time, I don't like small talk. So like the, hey, Jim, how's it going? How's your car working? You know, you've been working on that car I see in your garage. You know, like, I don't know. To me, it seems like almost nosy <laughs> in a way. And I'm not that guy. So, you know, if someone comes up to me, I'll say, hey, and talk to them. But, you know, my neighbors next directly next door to me are like the nicest people in the world. And because they are like those people who like have that sense of community, they come over, they know my son. They, um, they actually took us out to dinner last night. They came with us to one of the Halloween stores because my kid's obsessed with the Halloween store. And, you know, like, and that was really cool to me. And they're just neighbors, you know, and um, that was awesome. But I would never do that to my neighbors. You know, if I had a new neighbor move in their house at some point, I probably wouldn't say two words to them because I just don't, I mean, I'd say hello, I'd be friendly, but I wouldn't make it a point to like be a part of their lives. I, but that's just me. I don't know. I, I guess, you know, things are changing in, in that regard. And I don't know that it's good. And I don't know that I like that about myself, but you know, that's just how it is. Anyway, I digress. Let's get back to some true crime. August 7th, 1973, Henley, age 17 at the time, invited 19 year old Timothy Cordell Curley to attend a party at Coral's house. Curley accepted the offer and he and Brooks went back to Coral's place. The two arrived at Coral's and huffed paint fumes and drank alcohol until around midnight before leaving to go get something to eat. They drove back to Houston Heights, where Curley parked his vehicle near Henley's residence. Henley left the vehicle and walked toward the home of Rhonda Williams. She was a friend of his that had been beaten by her abusive father that evening. She decided she wanted to leave the house until her dad sobered up, so Henley asked her to come with him and Curley back to Coral's place. Around 3 a.m. on August 8th, the group arrived at Coral's residence. When they entered the home, Coral appeared to be angry. He pulled Henley aside privately and told him that he ruined everything. Henley told Coral what had happened to Rhonda and why she was with the pair, which appeared to calm Coral down quite a bit. The three teens drank, smoked weed, and Henley and Curly huffed paint fumes again while Coral watched them closely. After about two hours had passed, the three teens had passed out. At 8.24 a.m. on August 8th, Henley called the Pasadena police. 
During the call, he stated, Y'all better come out here right now. I just killed a man. Henley gave the address to the operator. As the group waited for police, Henley told the pair that he had done that about four or five times, referring to shooting a man, and he was talking to Curly and Williams. Moments later, the police arrived at Coral's residence. Henley alerted police to the body inside the house, and the police noticed that and confiscated a 22 caliber pistol from the driveway. The trio were placed in the patrol car as officers entered the house and discovered the body of Coral. The officer returned to the car uh, upon finding Coral's body and read Henley his Miranda rights. Henley responded by saying, I don't care who knows about it. I have to get this off my chest. Curly later told detectives that Henley said, if you weren't my friend, I could have gotten $200 for you. So uh, you have Henley here. He's uh, he's shot uh, Dean, and we'll get into that in quite a bit here. I wanted to play for you a call that was recorded and caught by cameras of Wayne Henley phoning his mother at the crime scene. So here, take a listen. Who? Mama. Who's this? It's Wayne. Yes, this is Mama, baby. Mama? Huh? I killed Dean. Wayne? Ma'am? What are you doing? Yeah, yes, sir. Oh, God. Where are you? I'm inside. It's all right. It's all right. Where are you? I'm, I'm out of his warehouse. Where? Out of that warehouse, he <laughs> Can I come out there? Yeah, yes. No. Is it around Clark? She can't. No, you can't come. I'm, I'm with the police, Mama. While the police interrogated Henley over the allegation that Coral threatened to kill him, Henley admitted to killing several boys. Henley continued to explain how, for the past three years, he and David Brooks had helped to lure teenage boys to Coral's place. Many of these teenage boys were friends of the pair. In Henley's verbal statement, he told police that he thought the boys were being abducted and sold into a Dallas-based organization for homosexual acts, sodomy, and maybe later killing. But he quickly learned that Coral was killing the victims he procured for him. Henley admits to being involved in the torture of six to eight victims prior to their murder. He went on to tell the police that victims were buried in a southwest Houston boat shed, Lake Sam Rayburn, and High Island Beach. What's interesting in this particular case, this part of the, the story, is you know you have Henley the accomplice, and he brings back this girl, and it throws Coral for a complete loop. And so when he brings her back to the house, Coral gets pissed. And, you know, he, you know, he starts getting into it with Henley and, you know, he basically tells, he tells him, you ruined everything, you know, what are you doing? And Wayne, you know, tells him the story, you know, her stepfather, her father's abusing her and, you know, I, I brought her over here and, uh, you know, I thought it'd be okay. And then he seems to calm down. And then what happens, you know, the, the kids keep partying and, you know, they're smoking pot, they're huffing paint fumes, they're drinking beer. They finally just pass out, and when they pass out, he straps all of them to torture boards, and you know, and they wake up bound and you know, basically preparing to be tortured by Coral, and and this includes Henley in this case, and uh, you know, at some point, um, you know, Henley somehow gets out of it or talks his way out of it, and I believe. Um, you know, we'll get into this a little bit later too, but Coral tells Henley that he needs to rape Rhonda. And I think that's where uh, Henley starts to get a little like, okay, 
this is getting a little out of hand now. And so he he starts to pretend to do it. And I believe while he's pretending to, you know, like cut off her clothes and stuff like that, um, he does cut her clothes. But I think, you know, he's kind of doing it in a way where it's like he's taking a sweet time trying to make it look like he's doing something, but trying to buy himself a moment. You know, he and Williams are talking and, you know, she's kind of pushing him to figure out a way to get out of this situation. And, um, you know, I, I think that's all he needs to finally decide to take Coral out. And on the flip side of that, Coral was visibly angry when uh, Henley had brought her to the house. And when they passed out, I think Coral found that the opportunity to tie Henley up because maybe he thought his head wasn't in the game anymore. He had slipped up. He was going to get them all busted. So, you know, that was his opportunity to take Henley out too and, you know, and move on maybe with Brooks and just Brooks and Coral at that point. So that's my thinking. And maybe Henley noticed that shift in Coral and it's like, this is do or die time too. So maybe they, they had, they had been involved in so many of these crimes up to this point, as sick and twisted as everything was, they still could read each other and know that something shifted just at that point in time. Yeah. And you know, they, they all wake up, you know, basically bound to this, their torture boards. Curly is stripped naked. You know, Coral is about to have his way with him just like he would normally with his victims. And, you know, somehow Henley gets himself out of it, and then he's able to grab that gun, and he basically just starts unloading the entire um, <laughs> entire magazine into him. And, you know, Coral goes down almost instantly in the hallway, and when police come in, you know, you find his naked body just laying on the floor, and there's blood smeared on the wall, and, you know, and then Henley gets everybody out, and they all go sit outside, and then he's sitting there talking to the group and he's like yeah i could have got 200 bucks for you <laughs> like <laughs> i mean the balls on that kid like oh man he's lucky that curly didn't just punch him in the face <laughs> you know hey, he's remorseful enough to set them free and and save them essentially at that point but he's also a little bit sadistic enough to say that i just missed out on 200 hundred dollar payday because i didn't let him do what he wanted to do with you <laughs> yeah it was so strange and it's just, it's crazy at this point. Um, but I want to move on to talking about the search, and I'm going to give a little warning. This is a, a bit graphic at this point. Um, you know, we try to tread a little lightly around it, but some of the details here, I feel like, you know, I, I feel like a lot of these things, and we've talked about this before, um, you know you're listening to a true crime show. And in this case, um, you know, this there's a lot of, um, homosexual acts and torture against young boys. A lot like the, like we talked about before, the Ray Rice case where he, you know, he punched his girlfriend in the elevator and it wasn't a big deal until people saw the video. I kind of feel like that about true crime where we hear about this stuff so much until you actually hear the detail, you know, then it really sinks in. So I apologize if that bothers you. Um, there will be chapters in this week's show. There weren't last week. There will be this week. So if you have a podcast player with chapters, you can skip the search section. Um, however, I just wanted to give that long-winded warning. Henley agreed to lead police to Coral's boat shed and help them locate the remains of the victims. Inside the boat shed, police found a half-stripped car, which was stolen from a used car lot in March, a child's bike, a large iron drum, water containers, two sacks of lime, and a box full of teenage boys' clothing. As they began to dig for bodies, 
they quickly found the body of a young blonde-haired boy lying on his side encased in clear plastic and buried beneath a layer of lime. As the police continued to dig, more and more victims would appear, all in varying stages of decomposition. The majority of the bodies were wrapped in clear plastic while some had been shot, most had been strangled, ligatures still wrapped around their necks. All of the victims recovered had been sodomized and bore evidence of torture. This next section is where it gets a little graphic. Many of, of the boys had their pubic hairs plucked out, their genitals chewed, objects inserted into their rectums, and glass rods had been inserted into their urethra and smashed. Rags were found inserted in the victims' mouths, along with tape to muffle the screaming. By the end of the day, August 8, 1973, eight bodies had been recovered. David Brooks was brought to the Houston police station by his father that evening. He provided a statement in which he denied any involvement in the murders, but admitted to having known Coral and knowing that he had raped and killed two youths in 1970. On August 9, 1973, Henley provided a full written statement to police. In this statement, he details his and Brooks' involvement with Coral and the abductions and murders for, of several of the youths. Craig and I are going to read the confession letters to both of both David Brooks and Wayne Henley. The following is the confession letter of Wayne Henley. My name is Wayne Henley. I am a white male, 17 years old. I live at 927 North 27th Street with my mother, grandmother, and brothers. About three years ago, I met a guy by the name of Dean Coral. Dean was a lot older than me, and a school friend of mine named David Brooks introduced me to him. David was always riding around in Dean's car and everything. I was only 14 back then, and I thought this was great. David Brooks told me he could get me into in on a deal where I could make some money, and he took me to Dean Coral. Dean told me that he belonged to an organization out of Dallas that brought, bought and sold boys, ran whores, and stuff like that. Dean told me that he would pay me $200 for every boy I could get for him, and maybe more if they were real good-looking boys. I didn't try to find any for him until about a year later, and I decided I could use the money to get better things for, for my people, so one day I went over to Dean's apartment on Schuler Street. Coral lived here February to June of 72. Dean had a GTX at the time, and we got into it. Dean and me started driving around. We picked up a boy at 11th and Studewood, and I talked to him since I had long hair and all, and it was easier for me to talk to him. I talked him into going into Dean's apartment to smoke marijuana, so we went over to Dean's apartment. Dean left some handcuffs laying out where they could be seen, and we had this little deal set up where I would put the handcuffs on, and then he could get out of them. Then we talked this boy, I don't remember his name, into trying to get out of them. The only thing was, we put them on where the locks were turned in, where he couldn't get the key into them. Dean then took the boy down and tied his feet and put tape over his mouth. I thought Dean was going to sell him to the organization that he belonged to, so I left. Then the next day, Dean paid me $200. A day or so later, I found out that Dean had killed the boy. Then I found out that Dean had screwed him in the ass before killing him. This was the start of the whole thing, and since then, I have helped Dean get eight or ten other boys. I don't remember exactly how many. Dean would screw all of them and sometimes suck them and make them suck him. Then he'd kill them. I killed several of them myself with Dean's gun and helped him choke some others. Then we would take them and bury them in different places. David Brooks was with us for most of them. I think the only three David Brooks wasn't with us on were the last ones at the house on Lamar Street in Pasadena. The ones that I can remember by name are David Hillegeist, who Dean told me that he had killed and buried in the boat stall. A boy by the name of Mally Winkle, who David and Dean told me they had killed and put in the boat stall. Charles Cobble, who I killed and we buried in the boat stall. Then Marty Jones. Me and Dean choked him and buried him in the boat stall. We killed a boy by the name of Billy Lawrence. I don't remember how we killed him, but we buried him at, up at Dean's place 
on Sam Rayburn Lake. We killed him at the house on Lamar Street, too. Dean told me about one boy named Reuben Haney that he killed and buried on the beach at High Island. I shot and killed Johnny DeLone, and we buried him at High Island. Then me and Dean and David Brooks killed two brothers. I think we choked them anyway. We buried Billy Balch at High Island and Mike Balch at Rayburn. We choked Mark Scott, Frank Aguirre, and buried them at High Island. The last one I can remember the name of is Homer Garcia, and I shot him in the head and we buried him at Rayburn. I don't remember the dates on all of these because there's been too many of them. Some of them were hitchhikers and I don't remember their names. Dean told me that there was 24 in all, but I wasn't with him on all of them. I tried to tell my mother two or three times about the stuff and she just wouldn't believe me. I even wrote a confession one time and hid it, hoping that Dean would kill me because the thing was bothering me so bad. I gave the confession to my mother and told her if I was gone for a certain length of time to turn it in. Me and David talked about killing Dean so that we could get away from this whole thing, and several times I have come to within an inch of killing him, but I never got enough nerve to do it until yesterday, because Dean told me that this organization would get me if I ever did anything to him. This statement covers all that I can remember about these killings, and all that I know about where they are buried. Signed, Wayne Henley. The following is the confession letter written by David Brooks. My name is David Brooks. I'm 18 years old, and I live at 145 Perch with my wife Bridget. I never actually killed anyone, but was in the room when they happened, and was supposed to help if something went wrong. The first killing that I remember happened when Dean was living at the Yorktown house. There were two boys there, and I left before they were killed, but Dean told me that he had killed them afterwards. I don't know where they were buried, or what their names were. The first few that Dean killed were supposed to have been sent off somewhere in California. The first killings that I remember being present at was at 6363 San Felipe. That boy was Reuben Haney. Correction, it's Reuben Watson, but in his confession, he writes Haney. Dean and I were the only people involved in that one, but Dean did the killing, and I was just present when it happened. I also remember two boys who were killed at the place, one, Apartments, on Mangum. They were brothers. Their father worked next door. They were building some more apartments. I was present when Dean killed them by strangling them, but again, I did not participate. I believe that I was only present when they were buried, but I don't remember where they were buried. The youngest of these boys is the youngest that was killed, I think. I remember one boy who was killed at Dean's house on Columbia. This was just before Wayne Henley came into the picture. Dean kept this boy around the house for about four days before he killed him. I don't remember his name, but we picked him up on 11th and Rutland. I think I helped bury this boy also, but I don't remember where it was. This was about two years ago. It really upset Dean to have to kill this boy because he really liked him. A boy by the name of Glass was also killed at the Columbia address. I had taken him home one time, but he wouldn't get out because he wanted to go back to Dean's. I took him back to Dean, and Dean ended up killing him. Now that I think about it, I'm not sure whether it was Glass that I took home or another boy, but I believe that it was Glass. It was during this time that we were living on Columbia Street that Wayne Henley got involved. Wayne took part in getting boys at first, and later he took an active part in the killings. Wayne seemed to enjoy causing pain and was especially sadistic at the Schuler address. Most of the killings that occurred after Wayne came into the picture involved all three of us. I still did not take part in the actual killing, but nearly always all three of us were there. Mark Scott was killed at the Schuler address. I had told yesterday in my witness statement about Mark Scott being at the Schuler house, but I did not say I was present, which I was. Mark had a knife, and he tried to get Dean. He swung at him with a knife and caught Dean's shirt and barely broke the skin. He still had one hand tied. Dean grabbed the hand with a knife. Wayne ran out of the room and got a pistol. Mark just gave up. Wayne killed Mark Scott, and I think he strangled him. Mark was either buried at the beach or at the boathouse. 
There was another boy killed at Schuler. Actually, there were two this time, a boy named Billy Balch and one named Johnny. I think his last name was Malone. Wayne strangled Billy and he said, Hey, Johnny! And when Johnny looked up, Wayne shot him in the forehead with a twenty-two. The bullet came out of his ear and raised up about out of his ear and he raised up about three minutes later and he said, Wayne, please don't. Then Wayne strangled him and Dean helped. It was while we were living at the on Schuler that Wayne and Dean got me down and started to kill me. I begged Dean not to kill me and he finally let me go. I had told about this in my witness statement yesterday and that part of my statement was absolutely true. It was also at this address that they got Billy Reidinger and what I said in my witness statement was true about him. I took care of him while he was there and I believe the only reason he is alive now is because I begged them not to kill him. Wayne and Dean got one boy by themselves while they were on Schuler. It was a tall skinny guy. I just happened to walk in the house and he was there. I left before they killed this one. In the first apartment that we lived in Westcott Towers, they had two or three. I think it was there that two boys were killed. These were both young boys from the Houston Heights area, but I don't know their names. Wayne accidentally shot one of them. This was about 7 a.m. I was in the other room asleep when this happened. Dean told me that Wayne had just come in waving the 22 and accidentally shot one of the boys in the mouth. The bullet went in, and you could see it beneath the skin. They didn't kill the boy right then. They killed these two boys later on that day. Dean moved to the Princessa Apartments at Wirt Road, and I remember him getting one boy there by himself. He wanted me to help him, but I wouldn't do it. I didn't want to mess with this one because I had someplace I wanted to go, so I tried to get him so mad that he would leave, but he wanted to stay. At that time, I was using Dean's car, so I was in and out all the time. After the Princessa Apartments, Dean moved to Pasadena. I know of two that were killed there. One was from Baton Rouge and was a small blonde boy from South Houston. I saw the boy from South Houston for about 45 minutes. I took him pizza and then I left and he wanted me to come back. I wasn't sure when either of these boys were killed. I did come in just after Dean had killed the boy from Baton Rouge. In all, I guess there was between 25 and 30 boys killed and they were buried in three different places. I was present and helped bury many of them, but not all of them. Most of them were buried at the boat stall. There are three or four buried at Sam Rayburn, I think. I'm sure that there are two up there. On the first one at Sam Rayburn, I helped them bury him. Then, the next one we took to Sam Rayburn when we got there. Dean and Wayne found that the first one had come to the surface and either a foot or hand was above ground. And when they buried this one the second time, they put some type of plastic sheet on top of him to keep him down. The third place that they would that they were buried was on High Island. This was right off the Winnie exit where the road goes to the beach. You turn east on the beach, beach road and drive until the pavement changes, which is about a quarter or a half mile. And the bodies are on the right-hand side of the highway, about 15 or 20 yards off the road. I never actually buried one there, but I always drove the car. I know that one of the graves had a large rock on top of it. I think that there are five or more bodies buried at this location. The bodies at the beach are in a row down the beach for perhaps a half a mile or so. I'm willing to show officers where this location is, and we'll try to locate as many of the graves as possible. I regret that this happened, and I'm sorry for the kids' families. I'm making my statement of my own free will and have not promised anything. Not been promised anything. Signed, David Brooks. So those were pretty loaded letters. Yeah, and crazy amount of detail in those letters. And I think both Brooks and Henley, Henley alluded to getting it off his chest. He just needed to get it off his chest. I think the guilt finally caught up to them, and they wanted to just get it out there and, and try to sleep easier at night if that was possible. Yeah, and obviously there was a boiling point where it seemed like these two just were not wanting to be a part of this any longer. And the only, you know, they finally just, you know, after this killing of Coral, here it comes. You know, we're not hiding anything. And and these 
these two are still young kids at the time. You know, they're not very old. And, uh, you know, I want to say Henley was like 17 or something. And I think Brooks might have been like slightly older, if I remember. But yeah, I mean, they're still, I think, 20 or younger. And uh, it's just, they finally get to that point where, here police, here's here's all the, the gory details of everything. And I mean, the amount that they remember, you know, like, yeah, there's like four guys here. There's like three guys here, you know, just... Uh, it's sick, you know, it makes you kind of sick to your stomach when you have to like read and listen to this and knowing that these people were out there living their lives like normal human beings. Meanwhile, they're murdering people and burying them at all these locations and keeping their mouths shut the whole time up until that point. Yeah. At that point it was just systematic. They were just killing people and burying them. Some of these cases we talk about, the killer doesn't remember anything until after it happens. I think in the, in the Molly Tibbetts case, you know, the guy who killed her said the next thing he remembers is driving down the road and he sees her bloody headset next to him on the seat of his car. It wasn't this way with these guys. They had done it so repeatedly, it was almost like second nature. And for them to remember exact details of where bodies were buried, that's, I don't want to say it's impressive, but it's, 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 it's crazy that they can remember that much detail about everything that they did because their system was so in tune with what they were doing that it, it wasn't traumatizing to them after so many times, I think. I think it just became what they did. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was. It was like the machine keeps going. You know, once it kind of got rolling, they just kept going. And, I mean, they were killing kids constantly. I mean, obviously, I mean, over the course of three years, you had almost 30 bodies. I mean, that's almost one a month for, for three straight years, you know, and just the the sheer volume of of kids that were killed, and they just talk about it almost nonchalantly. Yeah, that one was strangled, that one we shot, that one was tortured, this one he really liked, and, you know, it's just like, I don't know. I mean, you're reading their words on paper, so it's a little bit difficult to take the tone, but it does almost come off as nonchalant in a lot of cases, and just... It's it's pretty gross when you sit down and like actually read these confessions. Yeah, I, I completely agree. It it on paper when you read it it does sound nonchalant. And to me I kinda think it was. I think they Yeah, this is what we did this day and this person, this person, this person, that's just that's just what we were doing. Almost like that was her hobby. And almost was yeah, her hobby. It was. <laughs> it really was. It really was. Um so let's talk about some of the findings that were in the house. As police had questioned Henley, he was adamant there were more bodies other than that of Coral's. Remember, police only thought that Henley killed Coral and didn't quite believe the story of all the murders right away. When police entered Coral's home, they found plastic sheeting on the floor, the same used to bury the victims. They also found a plywood torture board. Attached to the board were handcuffs and nylon rope. They also found a portable radio rigged to a pair of dry cell batteries to increase the volume an electric motor with loose wires attached, eight pairs of handcuffs, several dildos, thin glass tubes, and lengths of rope. Coral's van also had been outfitted to serve as a tool in his sick game. The rear windows were sealed with blue curtains. In the back of the van, police found a coil of rope, a beige rug covered in stains from dirt, a wooden crate with air holes drilled in the sides, and pegboards on the back of the van were rigged with rings and hooks. A second wooden crate was found in Coral's backyard, complete with air holes, and inside the crate were several strands of human hair. So now we'll talk about the indictment and the um, and the trials. On August 13th, a grand jury listened to evidence presented against Elmer Wayne Henley and David Brooks. 
There to testify were Rhonda Williams, Tim Curley, and Billy Riddinger, the boy that was let go. After nearly six hours of testimony, on August 14th, Henley was indicted on three murder charges and Brooks on one. Bail was set at $100,000. After the grand jury finished their investigation, Henley was indicted on six murder charges and Brooks on four. Dean Curl's murder was viewed as self-defense and therefore no charges were filed. As the case headed to trial, both Brooks and Henley would be tried separately. Henley was brought to trial first in San Antonio, Texas on July 1st, 1974. This case was relatively open and shut. With a few witnesses like Tim Curley and Rhonda Williams, as well as evidence that the police officers um, had, including Henley's written confession, during the testimony, members of the family had to leave as they listened to Henley describe in detail how their family members were brutally tortured and murdered. Henley recounted the murder, murder of Charles Cobble and Marty Jones. He described how the pair had been tortured and abused, then told to fight each other to the death. Whomever survived would be set free. The pair only had one wrist and ankle bound to the torture board so they could fight. After several hours of fighting, Jones was tied to the board and forced to watch Cobble be assaulted, tortured, and shot to death before meeting the same fate. It took the jury just 92 minutes before declaring Henley guilty for all six murders. On August 8, 1974, coincidentally the anniversary of Coral's death, Henley was sentenced to six 99-year sentences to be served consecutively, totaling 594 years. Henley did have a retrial in June of 1979, but the outcome was the same. Brooks' trial began on February 27, 1975. Brooks was initially indicted on four murders, but was only tried for one, the 1973 murder of William Ray Lawrence. Brooks's defense attorney, Jim Skelton, argued that Brooks did not commit any of the murders, and he tried to paint a picture that Coral and Henley were the active participants in the murders themselves. Assistant District Attorney Tommy Dunn dismissed the defense's contention. He told the jury, quote, this defendant was in on this killing, this murderous rampage from the very beginning. He tells you he was a cheerleader if nothing else. That's what he was telling you about his presence. You know he was in on it. The trial lasted less than a week. The jury, much like in Henley's case, took just 90 minutes to return a verdict of guilty on March 4, 1975. He was sentenced to life in prison. So both these guys are now rotting away in prison still to this day. And... It's, um, you know, a pretty sick and twisted case when you break it down. You have nearly 30 murdered young boys and young adult men. And you have, you know, these two that were caught up in it. And Henley definitely appears to be more the aggressor. And, you know, he's into the violent aspect and the murders and those kinds of things. And then you have you know, Brooks, who he was kind of groomed by Coral first, and he seemed to be, you know, a, a sexual partner of Coral's, you know, at the beginning. And I, I'm not sure how that relationship went throughout this three-year span. I'm assuming that they still would hook up from time to time, which is probably the reason why Coral didn't kill him when they had thought about it at one point. And, you know, that that's the sick and twisted nature of this case. You know, you You've got these three individuals that were just tied up in this disgusting behavior, and then it led to nearly 30 people being murdered. Yeah, and and the only thing I'd like to throw out before we wrap up this episode is I I can see the jury looking at at Henley and Brooks as accomplices in all these murders, and and they were tried and convicted of murder. I'm, I'm I'm a bit shocked that, being that it's Texas, they weren't given a death sentence. 
or it wasn't, you know, especially for Hen Henley, something that kind of was unanimously chosen as the ultimate sentence because, I mean, historically, Texas has no problem putting people to death, I think. And this is my own personal opinion. I think they kind of whiffed on that one. I, I think it, we know Coral's dead and he was killed. He was killed by Henley. But like you said, these guys were involved in almost 30 murders. I think the world would be a better place if had they been put to death too. And that's my own personal opinion. Yeah. And it's, it's disgusting. And you know, the one thing that I found a little bit fascinating and I had an article and if I think about it, when we prepare the show to, to be posted, I'll put it in the show notes. There's an article from Rhonda Williams and it details, you know, her accounts of that, that evening. The, the interesting thing with her story was that she she recounts like visiting Wayne Henley in prison, you know, and she would go talk to him because there is this sort of weird relationship that she had with him. He brought her there and, you know, she almost was murdered because of him, but then he saved her life. And so she's wrestled with that. And I feel like she needed to talk to him to, you know, try and get those feelings out and you know try and process where she is and and the struggles that she's dealt with since that day and if i'm remembering correctly henley's mom kind of told her that she needs to leave him alone and like what are you doing quit talking to him get out of here and almost defending him still to this day i mean your son killed people on his own free will murdered several people and you're still like you know a pit bull in the corner defending your kid like they can't do anything wrong and that just stuck out to me it was odd very odd i'm sure from a mother's standpoint he he's probably positioned himself with her of it was a killer be killed situation and and she obviously wants her son to be alive so that's kind of my take on that that point even though as sick and sadistic as everything was she's still happy that he's alive and wasn't one of the victims yeah, and it's just, how do you, you know, I don't know how you would feel after something like that. Like I said, he, he, he brings you there and almost, he gets you in this situation, but he got you out of the situation, but you still had to go through the situation. So, I don't know. Um, it was quite crazy. I know that Henley's brother, I think, uh, they, they requested to interview him and, and he didn't want to be interviewed. And then they said, well, we interviewed, you know, so-and-so and your mom. And he said, fuck my mom. So <laughs> it was, uh, it seems like they have a contentious relationship to say the least. But, um, going back to Henley's conviction, I'm wondering if he was just tried as a youth and not as a adult. Um, maybe that's why he didn't get the death penalty. I'm not sure. Yeah, that could very well be. And he was 17 at the time. I think he was tried, right? So. Yep, absolutely. And so I think that might be like the big thing there that that's why he he didn't get it and um but I'm not 100% sure on that. I couldn't find a whole lot of information around it. Uh, while we were chatting there at the end, I was trying to look it up. Yeah, so th so that's the case of the Candyman. Got any final parting words? I'm I'm glad we made that case into a two-part episode because there was so much information to cover. And hey, the only other thing I got to to close with on my side is we're only a couple weeks away from Halloween, so we definitely need to share a little bit more information on the little tidbits on the Halloween episode we got coming up. Yeah, so um, let's get into it. If you enjoyed the show, 
please rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. So again, back to the beginning of the show, when you have an imposter podcast come after you, the rankings will definitely help us appear first in the search results, thereby destroying our competition one listener at a time, one review at a time. So seriously, please, if you would, uh, we would really appreciate if you could go out and and rate us and review us. Um, Again, it will help us and uh, it helps us bring better quality content to you. Um, As Craig mentioned, we are working feverishly on a Halloween episode. We're still debating whether or not we're going to release two shows that week or just one. It will probably be one because Craig and I both unfortunately have real jobs and those real jobs unfortunately require us to pay attention to them so that we can pay our mortgages. So that show will be a bonus episode. It will not be a real true crime story. It will be fictional, but we think you'll enjoy it. And we'll try to have that out the Monday before Halloween. I believe it is October 29th, if I'm not mistaken. So look forward to that. Also, if you would like to make this into a career for us, you can support us financially. In your podcast player, there's a link to our donation page, or you can head out to our website, www.killerpod.net, and click on the support button at the top of the page, and that'll direct you to a place where we will kindly take your funds and use them for the good of the show. And last but not least... You can follow us on social media on Twitter at killer underscore podcast or on Instagram at killer podcast, all one word. You can hit us up on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash killer podcast, or you can email us at killerpodcast at gmail.com. We've had several people reaching out to us on Instagram mostly, and uh, that's ten- that tends to be where we spend most of our time because Twitter seems a little fickle and... I personally hate Facebook, even though I know that Instagram is owned by Facebook. So don't hit me up telling me that. I already know. But yeah, so anyway, uh, thank you to those of you who have been reaching out. Uh, Really enjoy uh, talking to you guys, and I like hearing what you have to think about some of these cases and getting our opinions on some and uh you know craig and i have a ton of awesome stuff to to bring you guys in the coming weeks so you know stay tuned and um stick around and you know again like i said hit us up with cases you want us to cover uh you know we'll gladly add them to our list and and start looking into them that being said we are signing off for this week stay safe